Hello, and welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 53, Inferno, from 2016. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, rounding out the crew as they have for both previous iterations. Robert Langdon may change his partner. We do not change ours, even though he is continually betrayed by seemingly everyone close to him, no matter what he does, no matter what he tries to do, whatever he tries to avoid. We are bringing the same people back because they have done right by us as we continue to fail them time and again as we make them watch these movies over and over and over again. With us tonight, we have our literature expert. She is also going to be on next week's episode of The Circle. We have Jess Collins. Hello, Montez. Hey, how's it going? I'm so excited to talk about this movie. That is the wrong emotion, but thank you for being here. <laughs> Love the enthusiasm. And also with us, as always, the host of the Hard to Believe podcast right here on the Cage Club Podcast Network, we have our religion expert, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hi, how are you? Pretty okay. I watched this movie this morning. I've had a lot of time to uh, decompress from it. I've got a lot of I've got a lot of different thoughts about this because I have not read this book, so the story was new to me. Like I know it's not good, but I also was more interested. We'll get into it, I guess. But Mike, please, if people and good luck again. This might be the the last really crazy complicated one you have. No, I guess next week the circle might not be super easy. But this is one of the last super complicated ones you have. If people have not read or seen Inferno, although apparently the book is wildly different, please hit us with a plot summary. Tom Hanks is back as Robert Langdon, but he doesn't know who he is. He's He's got amnesia. He's got uh, head trauma. He's bleeding when we first meet him. He's in a hospital. He's super confused. Uh, he's having visions of hell, and he's being suddenly whisked away by Felicity Jones, who plays Sienna Brooks, and they're being chased by an unknown assassin for, at this moment, unknown reasons. Also after him is Harry Sims and Bouchard, who work for for this organization called the CRC, who are this sort of biotech company, I believe. Someone who worked with them named Bertrand Zorbist kind of went rogue, created a doomsday virus called the Inferno, hit it somewhere, committed suicide rather than being taken in for questioning, and Robert Langdon himself has the only clue. It is a cylinder containing a painting of Botticelli's Inferno based on Dante's telling. It's in a cylinder that projects it onto a screen. They decode it. It's out of order. All this shit goes down. They're being chased and whisked away, left and right, chased by the World Health Organization as well. This woman, Elizabeth Sinsky, she's sort of on the side of Bouchard and Sims, not really. They're all after Langdon. You know, we're not sure about this Dr. Brooks. Can we trust her? Can we not? What's going on here? They go after Dante's death mask. That's the next clue. They have to find that, but it turns out Langdon has stolen it. It's one of the things he can't remember. They're being chased again through another big museum. Everything's a museum in Italy, apparently. That's kind of true. Mike, as, as we know, the whole country is a museum, I think, is a line in this movie. It basically is, though. It's, yeah. <laughs> they get to Venice. Langdon is betrayed by Brooks. Turns out that she is the lover of Zorbrist, who created the virus. She is a devout disciple of his. It is up to her to unleash the Inferno virus. Uh, Langdon is powerless to stop. We get a little flashback between Felicity Jones and Ben Foster and their little lovey-dovey life together. Langdon is captured by Bouchard, then saved by Sims. Everything's explained. He's reunited with Elizabeth. They're off and on their way to Istanbul, not Constantinople. They go to the wrong horse for the wrong clue, but then they run to the right place in Turkey called the Sunken Palace. There is a concert going on. The plague is in a balloon. It's sunken under the water. They have to get it into a box. Felicity Jones explodes herself. There's another assassin out of nowhere. Langdon 
kills him or strangles him or he gets shot and uh, they get the fucking Inferno virus into a box, which is the most ridiculous shit I've ever seen in my life. They get the Inferno virus into a box. It's safe. Hank says Langdon is taking a breath, a breather that he deserved. He, Him and Elizabeth are recuperating and recovering. I'm exhausted. Let's get into it. <laughs> I am so glad I don't have to do these summaries because like, I can not pay super close attention to these movies and just be like, yeah, Mike's got it. That's cool. He got it. <laughs> quick bit of background about this movie so they wanted to adapt the lost symbol which is the third i believe in the series so there was angels and demons and then the da vinci code and the lost symbol but that took so long and as we i think i've talked about on previous episodes ron howard had absolutely no interest in adapting it tom hanks didn't want to come back somehow this book then releases they're like all right cool we'll just do this one and then for some reason ron howard and tom hanks are like okay cool we'll do this one so i don't know what made them not really want to do the lost symbol but want to do this one but this was such like an ongoing long endeavor that they, they want to do a third one people weren't sure then they wound up doing I think what this is the fourth one and now there's a fifth one I think called Origin that's out now too yes. so it is a really convoluted kind of timeline given that Da Vinci Code is the first movie but the second book and then this is the fourth book but it's a third movie and there's no fourth it's just who knows what's going on but as I said before I had never read this book and so I was somewhat slightly more interested in the movie just because it was all new to me I didn't enjoy it but I, I liked it more I wasn't as teen as I was in the first two just because I, I kind of roughly vaguely knew what the books were like and whatever but Montez as someone who has read the book and has seen this movie please hit us with your thoughts your impressions and if you have a favorite moment your favorite moment of Inferno all right so this is the first time in a very long time I've had a list in front of me of things I wanted to talk about Oh, wow. Okay, come unprepared. I like it. Bring the heat, Montez. Yeah, so my husband watched this movie again with me, and I remembered the first time we watched it, and the first time we watched it, we did nothing but bitch about how the movie was absolutely nothing like the book and how it irritated us. So that happened again today. There's a lot of things that are different in the movie that are not in the book. So the movie, from like an action movie perspective... It's kind of entertaining, like, whatever. If it was on TV, I wouldn't turn it off. Just because, you know, it's nice background noise. I actually really enjoyed the book. So I was very let down by this movie from a book-to-movie adaptation. So in the book, Zobrist actually has cancer. That's why he doesn't care about killing himself. So, like, he's already dying. So there's that fun fact. In the book... Robert Langdon does not look like he has been infected by the virus and shot up in the neck already. That was somebody else, and it, it turns out that he just got shot with a bullet, so nobody was ever, you know, infected before. It's also not called the Inferno virus in the book, it's the Vector virus, which actually causes infertility in a third of the world's population because of the overcrowding. And also in the book, the virus has already been released into the world. The virus has already been released, and the date that they keep trying to find, so in the movie they're trying to find the box by the certain date, in the book, they're actually, the date that they're trying to, I'm using like finger quotes here, I know no one can see me. The date they're trying to find this box by is actually the date that the entire world will already have been infected. Like, you're struggling with the whole book, which it doesn't really elaborate on this in the movie, and... You know, the movie would be so fucking long if it actually, like, incorporated all this shit in it. But the whole book, while you're reading it, you're like, okay, well, should you really do this? And Langdon, in the book, is like, okay, well, maybe we should just let the virus, like, go so they can help with overcrowding. Like, maybe this is the right thing to do. And then you find out that it's already been released, and it's like, oh, 
well, nothing we can do now. That's like one of the big differences there is that everybody's already got it. Yeah, so the other thing that I read on IMDb in that regard was that Sienna does not want to release the virus. I mean, it's already been released, but she's just trying to destroy it because she's afraid that the, the World Health Organization is going to weaponize it. And that's a totally different, altogether totally different. And also apparently Bouchard in the movie's bad, but in the book he never is not bad. So like, this is the shortest of the three movies, and it feels like they just grabbed a bunch of things were just like, hey, here's an action movie that's like kind of vaguely based on the plot. Yeah, it's really frustrating because Felicity Jones is also super angry the entire movie and like reveals who she is. She's super sketch from the get-go. Oh yeah, the camera tells you immediately. Yeah, so it's like... <laughs> And it's not like that in the book at all. So that that part really pisses me off. I really love Felicity Jones. That's like one of the main reasons why I, I was okay with watching this movie because I did not want this movie to be made. All I could keep thinking about when she, because again, you know that she's going to turn heel on him, but like, it's just that line from, I think from Serenity where Wash is playing with the dinosaurs. He's just like, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. It's just like, yeah, like we know you're going to go bad. Like yeah. it's very clearly coming. Oh, yeah. Like, but do you have a favorite moment? Is there something about this movie that you do like? Um, So I really like, the callback to the the Mickey Mouse watch. I think that's really important. Like, <laughs> like, at, like as a character, like he's just like super upset about he lost the watch. And I really love when he gets to Felicity Jones's apartment and she's like, "Here, try these clothes on." And he's like, "Oh, does this of this of somebody who lives here?" And she's like, "You're being rude." And he's like, "Oh, sorry." And she goes, "She's like, well, no, you're not sorry, but you know, here's the fucking clothes anyway." I love the idea that if they ever recast Langdon, all they need to identify him by is that watch. Yeah, so right. It's exactly. Like, yes. Start close in on that watch, you zoom out, and then it's, you know, whoever you've recast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, now, John, it feels like to me, maybe this isn't true, but it feels like this movie has less of a sense of, like, the same kind of let's toy around with history. Like, I know it's, I know it yeah. exists, but it feels like it's less dependent upon that in this. Please give us your thoughts, your impressions on the adaptation, the movie in general, and if you have to pick a favorite moment, or maybe you love this movie. I don't know. That would be a surprise. What do you think of the movie, and what's your favorite moment? I don't, I don't love the movie, but I will say that, kind of similar to you, Joey, I rewatched it today, and... I liked it a lot more than I did the first time. I think I liked it more than I have any of the other ones. And, and that's not to say that it's good, because it's a movie with like a lot of good stuff that forgets to be a movie. A lot of the pieces are great, but it never really comes together as like, as like a narrative, right? Where I'm like invested in what's going to happen next. It's sort of just like vignette after vignette. And that's my real problem with it. I think when I saw it the first time, I was kind of so jaded by the other two movies and just the whole Robert Langdon phenomenon. And had you read the book when you saw it the first time? No, I've never read this book. Okay. But, you know, I was just like, oh, God, just end this whole scene, <laughs> you know. Watching it in isolation, there's a lot more about this that I really like than I, than I did the other two. So, yeah, just to your point, yes, this movie, the story, does a lot less trying to make history fit the puzzle, right? <laughs> like, try to, like, wedge and massage historical data to make your conspiracy theory work. Yeah, like, in a weird way, it's like, hey, we're going to take all of this out of Langdon's brain, which means we're also taking it out of the movie, which feels like it's a weird choice. Yeah, and, and for the most part, it most of its claims are basically right. So, you know, the way it talks about, like, early on, one of the things the Langdon says, and it's one of those very broad Dan Brown 
pronouncements, right? Where he's like, actually, Dante invented hell. And I'm like, that's basically true, right? Like, that what Christians tend to think about in their imagery of heaven and hell, the vast majority majority of it comes from Dante. Um, and, it, and it's not it's not biblical. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually kind of right. There's a lot in here. For instance, the puzzle about the layers of hell, right? And that it's not, this is what Dante planned, or like, this is what Botticelli planned. It was, no, this guy like fucked with the image <laughs> to create a puzzle. And I'm like, cool, yeah, do that, right? That makes more sense. So you're right. There's a lot less playing around with the historical and religious elements to it. Um, I do love, I love the scenery here. Again, like I love angels and demons because it's just like nonstop Rome porn, but like this is nonstop Florence porn. <laughs> like it's, it's great. And then you get to the Hagia Sophia and like, and the Sistern Basilica, which is an awesome structure. The filming locations are great. I think the cast is really, really good. I also feel that like Tom Hanks, Langdon is actually an, a character in this movie that I never realized before. The other two movies, he's just sort of a plot piece, but he actually has some like weird humanity in this movie and, and an actual dimensions to him. I think the chemistry with him and Sisdi Babbitt Knudsen, who's who plays Sinski, is actually really strong. I love Irfan Khan, who died last month, who was an awesome actor. Um, anything that he's in, I, I eat up. I also love Felicity Jones, Ben Foster playing Ben Zobrist, whatever his name is. Billionaire baseball player Ben Zobrist, yep. The one thing that just... When I was watching it again that really annoyed me about this movie is that I wish there was at least like one other cast member from Robert Langdon's stories that like made it through another movie because I feel like if there, if there was some consistency with the people that he encounters um, aside from sort of the fabricated one with Sinsky in this movie right people would feel a lot more connected to it and this would be a lot less of a throwaway but no I actually I have to say like I enjoyed this way more than I remembered enjoying it and, and way more than I thought I would it's not memorable it's not really grabbing. The whole premise is stupid as hell. <laughs> it's the Thanos virus. And it's like, dude... And again, that's so fucking Dan Brown. Like, and I know that wasn't even the plot of the novel, but the idea of the biggest problem in the world is overpopulation, which is not true. And most scientists are like, no, we can actually populate the world quite a bit more. It's how we're using our resources. It's like where we're living. The number of us is not the problem. So, but like Ben Zobrist is like, yeah, that's the big problem. And he doesn't make any, doesn't back it up with data. He just like makes a TED talk about it. And like, we're supposed to believe him. With all of the like speaking eloquence of the, like a high school debate team guy he's just like oh and this is it just it feels it's, it's not the very powerpoint you didn't fall yeah, for his powerpoint exactly. <laughs> no but I then, not. but then also what ben zobrist and thanos don't understand is that the population was like 50 percent of what it is now in like the mid 70s like it's not that much it wouldn't take us very long to repopulate to 100 percent, but it would also completely fuck up our entire civilization like most of civilization would collapse just right away if we all half of us just died overnight yeah and then really talk about that but it's not like buying us more time it's not as though we had like four billion people in like the 1300s it was like 1972 was the last time that like 50 percent of people are there that's the entire point of his presentation it's like you know you have the virus and one day before if it doubles every day one day before we're right there it's like okay you kill half the people we're still gonna be back there quicker than we've ever been right i think to, to the point that montez was bringing up earlier that in the novel it's about a virus that makes a third of the world sterile that apparently would wipe out civilization in 200 years or something like that. And I'm not exactly sure how that math works, but it seems like a much more devastating endgame, no pun intended, than this. Because it just, you're right, John, because it feels like, okay, we kill half the people, but then like, yeah, by 2050 or something, we're back where we are. It just buys us a couple decades, right? Well, it's also way smarter, but as we know, that would also lead to The Handmaid's Tale. So, there, you know, there's no good outcomes here. <laughs> 
this is not the way to deal with climate change, people. Like, we need to change the way we behave, not how many of us there are. Wipe out half. Yeah, it's that virus in the box. It's the box virus. Mike, what about you? We, you know, there's still, there's still episodes of the podcast. We still got the circle to talk about, but this feels like the wrap-up to something in particular, something of importance on Hanks. So what did you think of this movie, and do you have a favorite part? This, I gotta be honest, was, was a rough one. This kind of felt like a punch you saw coming that you kind of couldn't move out of the way from. <laughs> you knew you just, you're in the ring and you have to take it till the bell rings. I was like, this beginning's not bad. I like Ben Foster. I didn't know he's in it. Oh, look, he's dead. Like, what's going on? Then we get, like, the really abrasive headache st- stuff with Amnesia Hanks and I just felt the filmmaking was attacking me and I was like having trouble kind of watching it because like it really puts you in the shoes of a guy who's suffered blunt force trauma been stabbed in the neck and then thrown into some kind of makeshift hospital I really was having trouble sort of acclimating to this film I feel like it got better as it went along but it's a super redundant movie like they find themselves in the exact same situation every 20 minutes they're deciphering kind of a meaningless clue first it's the painting that leads to the death mask but then they're being chased out of a building and they have to find like a secret entrance or an exit and then it just like happens again and again and until she double crosses him which you can see coming like a mile away yeah i had a tough watch i didn't really have a lot that i liked to be honest with i did like though and this made me think of you a little bit jess is that he's kind of stroking out the whole movie this one right we didn't get it at all the last movie and i was really impressed by those visions like you know they're very (laughs) demonic and hellish and kind of horror show. I didn't really feel like Ron Howard had that in him. Yeah. That was my favorite part is that I was kind of bummed that, you know, Langdon didn't get sucked into some kind of alternate dimension like Doom or something and like had to fight like for his life against demons and, you know, some kind of elder entity. But that that's my favorite stuff. I also quite like the cast. Like I said, I love Ben Foster and, and lots of other stuff. I love Jin Erso in uh, Star Wars. She's like one of my favorite characters in Star Wars. I think that proves that she could play sort of like an anti-hero or like someone who's not quite supposed to be likable. An anti-matter hero from a past movie, maybe? Oh, crossover. Yeah, and that had Obi-Wan in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, the cast is good. They're doing what they can. Even Hanks, you know, I feel like they kind of tried to reset his character with the amnesia a little bit and make him a little more likable and sort of be like, oh, I am a dick? Oh, shit, like, I should probably change that about myself. (laughs) Like, they call him out a lot as being, like, not a great guy, and so... That was kind of nice for them to be like, we heard you, trying to do some fan service here. That's about it overall. To Mike's point, like, I think that kind of illustrates what I was saying, that it just never quite catches on. Like, there's all these kind of great elements to it, and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe. you know, And it just sort of, I don't know, kind of tumbles its way through the two hours. But, like, the first ten minutes are pretty awesome and, like, really exciting and interesting. And it's like Amnesia Langdon and gunshots and who's... Felicity Jones, you know, what's she all about? And, like, stuff that you just don't get in the other two. I also liked in the first few scenes, there was some actual good jokes and some good humor. Like, when she goes, yet you can't remember the name for coffee, or whatever it was, right? Because he's like, get me that hot black drink. And she's like, you mean tea? That people drink in the morning for energy, you know. Right. And then he says some weird thing about symbology, and she's like, but you can't remember the name for coffee. And it's like, ha, that's true. And then also I liked when she... (laughs) He's, like, decoding the Dante puzzle, and she goes, so he's made an anagram. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's an anagram. (laughs) Your whole field is a joke. (laughs) Yeah, I felt like that called out the whole series of movies. And it was funny! (laughs) Like, I legitimately laughed at that line, but... 
I feel like this movie is an example in contradictions. Like, everything that I could like or should like or whatever is also something I radically don't like. I have the the list on Letterboxd, and at the end of this run of movies, Mike and I are going to do our episode ranking Tom Hanks' films, and I don't know how I'm going to rank these. They're all basically clumped together. I think this might be the worst of the three. I don't know. I don't know. But, like, I liked it best maybe because I didn't know what was coming, and I didn't have, like, things to be disappointed by. I think Felicity Jones is my favorite part but also i hate that she's cloyingly like exactly the same type of character we've seen over and over again in all these movies i like the idea that hanks can't remember who he is at his essence isn't himself anymore i think that's interesting and then they still make him super smug in a way it's all these possible things were just like oh you're so close to it being like really cool and interesting and then not it's frustrating to me and like the whole anagram thing it's like yeah like how do you not remember or realize the most basic thing imaginable or like you're looking at this art but like you don't see the letters or they're like oh look at all these hidden letters oh look at this hidden sentence in english on the bottom it's like how do you not notice that wait is that english i love that that's my I, I swear, like, the next movie, he's going to be looking at the magic eye paintings, you know? And, like, if you hold it right and cross your eyes, an image pops out. It's like, all right, Langdon. And the Illuminati used these to hide messages in the 13th century. Yeah, yeah. I think if I had to pick one favorite thing, and this is something that I'm probably reading too much into because it seems like the movie has absolutely no interest in exploring, but it feels like at certain points that this is like a meditation on aging, on, like, getting older. Because, again, for, like, the third time in the last, like, four or five movies, my like, Hanks winds up in an emergency room or like a hospital room and it just feels like he keeps winding up there and it feels like you know memory wise here it's different but like it just seems like he's not the same person that he was and it seems like he's less competent and less able and less whatever and it feels like a lot of what's going on here could kind of be kind of a meditation on like what does it actually mean to get older and try to be like a, a sort of like a shadow of your old self but then like as soon as like the movie takes a moment to sort of maybe explore that it's like okay now he's got to run across some beams it's like wait wait what do you what no, stop. What are you doing? Not everything has to be an action movie. I just feel like there's interesting ideas here that are almost entirely erased or negated almost immediately. It's interesting. I was getting like kind of hologram for a king vibes out of his portrayal of Langdon in this character of someone who's like going through this crisis of self, basically. But then this movie wants you, right, to be chased by an assassin at the same time. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait. Like, what's more important in a lot of ways? You know, I think at this point, we'd like to see the first movie, but the audience is kind of just clamoring for him to be Indiana Jones in modern day. Like, they really just want to really put a pin on that, I feel, this time around. Um, but you're right, like, he does get his ass kicked up and down in this movie. He represents, like, someone who shouldn't really be out there in the field doing this kind of stuff and isn't really expecting himself to be either, you know? He's like, I belong giving lectures. I should be doing the TED Talks, not fighting bad guys. All right, Mike, now I think you, you did such a good job of holding yourself back in the last time, but time to unload. What do you hate about this movie? What doesn't work for you? Least favorite parts? Well, I think the virus was bugging me. Granted, this did come out and you know before Endgame and all that kind of stuff but like just the whole idea of like the overpopulation stuff was uh, like from the get-go was a bit disappointing but then at the end when the ultimate straw that broke my back was the end when the fucking actual virus is in a balloon that's like submerged under like a foot of water in the middle of this concert and they're able to put the balloon in a box and like it pops but 
the virus doesn't get out because it's a uh, air sealed by I don't know all that shit just I couldn't put up with the end of this movie for one minute and I, I basically started tuning out with the beginning stuff it didn't get off on a great hand with me either with all of the abrasive filmmaking techniques that were being thrown at me to get me into that sort of amnesic you know headspace and all that uh, I really kind of hate movies that deal with amnesia. I mean, no offense to the Fast and Furious series. I think they pull it off. It's our entire lap, man. What are you doing? Don't don't throw us under a bus. I, I said no. I'm bringing it up now to point out <laughs> how it's well done. I feel like if you're going to do it to Langdon, you got to make him amnesic for like a whole movie and like, you know, know that you're coming back next time and he might get his memories back or something like they did with Letty, you know, like they found a way to sort of write that character back into a series. And that's more of a soap opera anyway, like it could handle that kind of uh, plot twist. I feel like this is very much sort of out of nowhere. You know, you find out that he is drugged. So I guess, you know, ultimately, there's a valid explanation for it. But I just found it to be surprisingly lazy. I did not know he was going to be amnesic until the movie started, you know, like all these things were were new to me. So uh, that just put me off on a really bad foot to begin with and never recovered now john it seems like everything that you were kind of digging about the early stuff mike did not find any joy in whatsoever so what did you not like about this movie i mean it seems like it lost him early and never regained him but it seemed like you were on a uh, starting on a pretty high but then it seems like you're not you know you didn't love this movie so what did you not like about this least favorite part or parts of inferno there's the typical sort of dan brownish eye roll stuff like when ben zobrist says well did you know that black plague happened and then it was because of that that we had the renaissance that's like ah that's not really i mean sort of you know it's the, <laughs> the sort of broad broad brush and it's like yeah i mean some of the economic factors that may sort of have played into the overall conditions that led to the renaissance but it's not like people got out of the black death and were like all right guys let's renaissance let's do some painting and we're just gonna make new buildings and like you know that's kind of what it sounds like and that's stupid and that's really not how it works but there's not a ton of that sort of eye rolly stuff in this in this movie i think the problem with it is that ultimately because it isn't really all that overboard like a lot of it is actually kind of plausible at least more so than da vinci code and angels and demons oh yeah by the way this is a weird movie to watch during a pandemic it totally is and i was like they should have called this movie plandemic but yeah, I think the problem, though, is that once you get rid of all the really high drama, ridiculous stuff of the Da Vinci Code and Agents and Demons, you get to the point that you understand, like, you see how sort of empty <laughs> this character and this story really is. Again, I found it kind of charming, like, how sort of low stakes this all kind of feels, even though it's, like, the only one of the three movies where actual human lives are really in danger in a much more immediate sort of way. That's kind of odd but you know yeah I, I think because it takes a much more less absurdist tone in terms of the way that it looks at history and religious iconography and that sort of thing that it sort of reveals that like there isn't really much there I again like re-watching it I, I actually enjoyed myself and I found myself kind of really into a few moments of it but then as soon as it was over I'm like ah, I don't even care it just completely left my awareness uh, as soon as it was over so you know and I think that's kind of sad but I like again I do like some of like what Jess was saying about the watch like I like that too like I really I liked the whole notion of trying to actually like give Langdon some human qualities which this movie did in a way that the other two just didn't do it's sort of it just makes it feel like the whole thing is really run out of steam and that's what's sort of disappointing about 
Montez, what about you? I know that you um, hate the adaptation, but you said you would you like it as background noise. That's kind of to my other co-host, Joe Two, calls brain mush. I would imagine you gave this movie a very high, a radically high score on Letterboxd. Um, I know, it's like three and a half stars, I think. Um, so listen, so listen. <laughs> all right, okay, all right. Let me explain my rating system here. All right, anything like three and over, I'll watch it again, or I won't turn it off. <sighs> Yeah, I know. I like I, I appreciate that as a rating <laughs> system. I don't know how that applies to this movie, but all right. Yeah, so I mean, for this movie, I think it's just the fact that, like, it is entertaining. Like, all of the jokes and stuff and the humanizing of Langdon at the beginning. Like, I like that. I've already said before, I like these books. I don't care who thinks they're dumb. They're entertaining. How does this compare on the entertainment scale to the other two movies for you? So in the universe, I would say this one is less believable because what is happening feels nothing like anything Langdon would ever freaking do. Like getting shot and being like abducted. His cardio is just out of control in this movie. I mean, he's like walking in the other two and he's taking a car places. In this one, he's just like running around. He's swimming. Tom Cruise in it. I, I know, like, who is this guy? You know, wrong Tom. I think that's why I find this movie entertaining. And like I said, I would be fine with it if it's on. If I hadn't read the book, I think I would have hated it less from an like a adaptation standpoint. Ugh. <laughs> I think I think looking back upon this, it's probably of all the franchise series I've watched and completed, I think it's my least favorite. Yeah, Mike, where's where's your crossover episode? Are you gonna do it soon? Oh no, doubt that. Ever no. Talking about it, talking about this movie for another hour? I don't think it's gonna make it to the end of my show's lifespan. I don't especially love the Hunger Games or anything, but I can appreciate that they're well-made films to a degree that these just like do not compete. And if I had to like watch one of these again ever, I think I'd go back and watch the first one. Um, I think there's a tongue-in-cheek value to that one that they strip away by the end of the series, and it just kind of becomes all action. And there's something more fun. They, they've sort of, it's no more national treasure. You know, it's not that anymore. And I think that's what I liked, if anything, that was like sort of the vein, the main vein that I was sort of like feeding on. But that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go back, Montez, just for one second. Did you say, is there one thing in particular that stands out among the rest as your least favorite part of this movie? The way that they have Felicity Jones' character adapted based on the book. I hated that. Okay, yeah, that's, that's fair. That's about, that's... Mm, yeah. Is she not just like a devout conduit of Ben Foster's character in the book that just would, you know, seemingly do anything he said for her? Like, that's what it kind of read like. It sort of read like she had instructions after his death to, like, do all of this step by step and no free will of her own. And I was just like, that didn't play very well. Yeah, I mean, she was, like, obsessed with him in the book, too. But I think it's just the fact that she's, like, super angry and she hates Lingdon in the movie. Like, she just comes off as, like, she hates him. Like, it was not like that in the book at all. And, like, you don't really know that she's going to be bad until, like, she shuts the gate on him before he falls and hits his head again. I think most of what I didn't like about this movie, I sort of did in my little pivot where it's, like, all the things that I liked is also what I didn't like. But I do think there's a very kind of egregious oversight in a way is when they're on the train with the guy who is the guy who laid the term from the world health organization what's his name is that 
Bouchard or is that not Bouchard? That's Bouchard. Okay, so they're on the train with Bouchard, and then you know they he fakes his passing out, and the guy goes to get them water or whatever, and you know they rush and they did this. They hold like this whole grand exit from the train, right, to like to, to dupe him and to to gain ground on him, and they very clearly leave that train without having the death mask. Like they leave Dante's death mask on that train, and yet somehow at the end of the movie, Robert Langdon has it and returns. It just feels like in this rush, like they they just leave the table without grabbing anything, and it just feels like one of those where it's like they want this like kind of cheesy corny happy ending where all the things tie up I, for like five minutes i was like do they really just leave dante's death mask in a plastic bag on a train what it just felt like this one little weird thread that like they wanted to make sure they tied up into a nice little bow at the end that just i did not think was hand like i just it was a weird very minor thing to nitpick in a movie that is wildly incongruous with all sorts of reality and whatever no but this feels like the kind of movie where they would like put dante's desk mask in like a mailbox right with like stamps on it and an head and they like make sure this gets back to where it belongs and like the post credit scene would be like you know a guy like at the museum opening up the package being like, oh, it's the death mask. But I hear, I hear what you're saying because they drew attention to their own plot hole and they could have just left well enough alone. Yeah. Does anyone else have any further thoughts on Inferno before we play a couple games, ask a couple questions? Montez, any other thoughts on Inferno or I guess the series as a whole? I would say the only book I actually haven't read is The Lost Symbol. And there's five total. There's five total. And Lost Symbol's the third one or the fourth one? Lost Symbol is the third one. This is the fourth one. And the fifth one is Origins. And... If you guys thought this was unbelievable, Origins is not good at all. So his partner in that book is AI. No way. Super cool. Hold on a minute. Langdon Bot. Mike, fifth time's a charm. They might have to make this movie. No, I do think that there are probably, I would hope, no plans to make any more, because I think, as John has mentioned on past episodes, Ron Howard seems like the last thing in the world he wants to do is make more of these movies. So I don't think we're going to have more, but I do want to make it very clear that if we have to watch them for this podcast, the both of you have to watch them for this podcast, too. So uh, contractually, you're coming back. There's the talk of that show on Amazon or something, maybe? So is a prequel? The Young Robert Langdon Chronicles on Amazon. Yeah, that's in development. Here for it. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> if, if Hanks is not involved, I think I'm going to take a pass. But, John, what about you? Anything else? Any other final thoughts? You won't need Hanks. You just need someone with a Mickey Mouse watch, like Mike said. It just exactly. that's how you know it's Robert Langdon. First shot of the series, yeah. Like Shia LaBeouf as young Langdon. But, John, any other thoughts on Inferno or the series or anything before we uh, do our end of episode stuff? I liked the Dante mask at the end. That was really cool. I like Dante. I I also like that they pointed out the whole... So, like, Inferno itself, the whole Divine Comedy, is basically, like, a weird stalker fanfic where Dante goes, you know, goes through all the layers of heaven and purgatory and hell to, to find Beatrice his lost love, who's a real chick who he met like twice in his life and was just completely obsessed with. I thought it was cool that the movie actually pointed that out. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, I like that. Yeah, he was a little bit of a weirdo and like creepy stalker guy, but he created this great work of literature from it. So there is that. No, no, I, I, you know, again, I think if this movie had been like an episode of a television show, it would have been pretty great, but there simply wasn't two hours worth of stuff to stick into it. So I'm glad it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And Mike, any other thoughts about Inferno or the series? It's not for me. It's a no from you, dog? 
It's a no, dog. Uh, not my cuppa. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just at this stage, like, they went in the wrong direction. I, I You know, they needed to, he needed to find, like, a supernatural artifact in this one. And, like, you know, something weird and magical needed to keep going. And, and they went in the other direction. They tried to strip it down and make, a, make it more like a Jason Bourne thriller or something like that. And I just don't feel like that's the character's nature. Not that I understand the character, you know, I feel like at all. But I feel like for maybe what it should be in my eyes, you know, this guy should find, like, a mirror of souls or something i don't know but yeah like he it needs to if they want him to be indiana jones indiana jones dealt with all that shit too so yeah i just feel like they didn't even really know what they had here half the time and then uh, what they did do is sort of misinterpret like everything else you know and that's just i haven't read the books i don't know but just hearing these last few episodes that's pretty much my takeaway the very important question we have to ask is, could Tom Cruise play the role of Robert Landon? I do not remember at all what we said the last two movies. I think I probably PTSD blocked them out of my brain, all semblance of those. I also know that we did one of them, I believe, like the week of like all the protests, they all began. I remember we were in a very dark place, so I think I extra blocked that one out. But could Tom Cruise, I guess specifically for Inferno, could Tom Cruise play the role of Robert Langdon in this movie? Montez, what do you think? In this one, absolutely. You want to elaborate or just, the, just all the athletic behavior? Yeah, I think Tom Tom Cruise could absolutely do this role. I think the fact that there is so much freaking running, he could crush it. Uh, clearly the man's up on his cardio game. I think, too, the fact that, again, I think I said it already, but this character in this movie felt very much less like Robert Langdon, so I wasn't as connected to it as being a Tom Hanks role. So, yeah, absolutely, Cruise could totally do this. All right, and John, what about you? Oh, yeah, it's, you know, they got the amnesia. <laughs> you got the intense drama and the flashbacks and it's for sure this is a much more in fact this movie might have been better if it had just been a tom cruise movie it would have been a pretty dull tom cruise movie but it probably would have been a better movie if it was just not a robert landon movie and was just a sort of generic tom cruise actioner along the lines of like oblivion or something like that right so yeah 100 percent. and mike oh yeah yeah definitely you know he's like he's shot there's lots of like sabotage and stuff like it, it fits way more into his wheelhouse and his season it even feels like this movie is trying to draw from what's popular at the time and there's aspects of mission impossible going on here you know there's no need for like anyone other than the world health organization to be chasing him you don't need that other organization like that's just some secret organization so yeah i i think i think uh but john said this is pretty interesting like this could just you know strip it of all sort of name and everything and just put it out as like a tom cruise movie with it that would have worked uh, he's always saving the world i mean mission impossible 2 is basically the same plot right so yeah mission impossible 2 hobbs and shaw you know hobbs and shaw does it like really well for an action movie kind of thing so definitely like not the problem right the problem isn't that it's like a world-ending virus it's what they wrote around it all there's a lot of like I would just I just watched last night for the first time Swordfish and like you know again John Travolta in that movie's talking about saving humanity it's just, it's just like it feels like population control is on everyone's brain and all the time in all these movies and just pandemics and everything like whatever angle you want to go on the Tom Cruise of it all I don't know I guess more so than in other movies I would like to see and I don't think we've really had this Mike but I would like to see the movie that I wanted this to be like the meditation on aging I think that I would want to see Tom Cruise in that too where maybe he plays I don't know what this would be maybe a Paul Thomas Anderson thing where like he plays an aging action star trying to come to terms with the fact that he is 
unable to complete the stunts. Maybe it's a it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie written by Charlie Kaufman. It sounds like JCVD, the Jean-Claude Van Damme film that came out like maybe a decade ago where he's playing an aging action star that doesn't really have it anymore and then he's thrown into a hostage situation and he feels like he should protect everyone but he's just super inadequate and like isn't a real you know he's not really an action hero so like yeah that's a pretty good movie too you should check it out all right it is a good movie yeah i've heard of it i think it's been on my list but yeah i've not yeah okay so now on the other hand is tom hanks in this movie still america's dad or does he do things to dissuade us from believing that oh man i mean like in the book not right like he wants the virus out there he's like well just let it go wait no 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 that's not that's not that's the wrong message to get from this episode mike I don't think so. I think on a whole, I don't think Robert Langdon should be raising kids, necessarily. I don't think that he's a great role model, per se. John, as a father of three, is Tom Hanks playing a father role in this? Sure. I mean, you know, it's also, this This is the movie that also goes out of its way to be like, he's single because his symbology career kept getting in the way. And they're even like, oh, that's, you don't have to say that she's your niece. We get it. You're an Italian professor. We get it. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he's still, he's still heroically sacrifices his mickey watch to save the day so it's something your dad would do sure and montez mother to one is this the ideal of fatherhood is tom hanks being america's dad in this movie listen he's like the dad who went out on a bender and just like is trying to get his life back on track so you're saying that there's like the bad moms movie series the bad dads movie series is just this franchise yeah this one for sure yeah but he's paying alimony with those book sales at least exactly exactly (laughs) alimony tony I'm going to say, yeah, sure, why not? I'm just going to, I think I'm going to write down just, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, yeah, sure, why not? I think that was on most of the script of this movie, too. Is the <laughs> Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. And then everybody stabs everybody else. There's a lot of stabbing in this, like, a lot of people get stabbed to death in this movie, which is it's just an in, inordinate amount of stabbing. Also, brutal death of that cop. The cop who falls, like, like 150 feet to her death. It's just like, whoa, like, I didn't expect that. I, I was just going to mention that because, uh, like, what did they have to do to replace that incredibly historical religious painting that got destroyed <laughs> when she died? I was hoping when she dropped the cell phone, when Felicity Jones dropped the cell phone, the cell phone was going to fall through the art. But no, it just lands and just makes noise. And then police officer, like, within three minutes is falling through that same thing. So They're probably still spending a lot of time rebuilding the Basilica of St. Peter from, from the previous movie, so... All right, the Woody's, the Tom Hanks Awards, the best and the worst of Tom Hanks' filmography. Best film, worst film, best of the worst, most fun, bad film. I think we're going to have to nix that category because knowing what's next, I'm going to tell you right now, the circle is not going to fall on that. And I think the final four movies are all going to be good. So I might have to, we, have, we might have to just unofficially award the Bonfire of the Vanities most fun, bad film. So congratulations to your, your prize darling. Oh my God, thanks for reminding me. I just, that my brain just smiled when you mentioned the title of that movie. Yes. I think you and Austin Wolf Sutter are the only two people on the planet who like that movie, but is this nominee? I don't think it's best film or worst film. I think if we didn't nominate Angels and Demons or The Da Vinci Code for worst film, I think this is at least as good as those, right? Yeah, I think this is just like, meh. Right. I'd almost give it consideration for best of the worst because it just, it does try so hard to be like a good little movie, but it isn't. But again, like it has a lot of admirable (laughs) ingredients. And just, baby, you don't got that stew going. It's like a kid who made really crappy cookies from, like, really expensive ingredients. It's it's like, well, you did think to buy all the, the expensive chocolate chips, but, yeah, I don't know, maybe. 
if I didn't know better, like it almost feels like a movie, and these have sort of, I've gotten this vibe recently with other things too, but it feels like it's sort of been sitting on a shelf since the mid-90s or something, yes. where it's just still dealing with the same old shit. It does have that feel, for sure. It does feel like a movie that was made a long time ago, and people were like, eh, I guess we'll put it out there now. It's it's weird. It was also like 500 years after after the other two, so, you know, in terms of in terms of release or not 500, but like 6, right? Was there like people asking for this? Like that's no. the other weirdest <laughs> thing. It was 06, 09, 16. So like there's 7 years in between. Also this has like half the budget of the last one. Like the first one had a budget of 125, then 150. This only has 75. Oh, you know what this was? They they needed to hold on to the property, so they needed to shit out a movie real quick and uh, get it out. There's like a total fan four sticks situation with or any basically any time they made a fantastic four movie in the last like 40 years like going all the way back to roger corman but that kind of makes sense to me now that you know they're like shit quick make it in case we want to do something with this property down the line well speaking of fantastic four catch me and montez on html if they ever put episodes out again covering those movies so we're on all four of those movies so check out that podcast here on the podcast network but best role worst role most wasted performance we do have it already for the franchise in worst hanks role robert langdon so don't worry we got that there best ensemble no best fight he does get into a fight in this movie but i don't remember it at all so i can't remember that it's good (laughs) yeah no it wouldn't be good unless like he fought someone with like a robot arm and a chainsaw leg that had like two heads you know i don't think they could have really done or one of those doom demons i mentioned way early on i wish like he opened a portal to he did hit bouchard in the head with a fire extinguisher which is pretty cool irfan khan's fight at the end is pretty badass even though he dies oh yeah yeah he puts up a hell of but a he, he kills like three other dudes first so best dancing i don't think he dances best wardrobe or outfit i don't think he has anything noteworthy he's only wearing ben zobris clothes the entire time so but he's got the hospital gown on you don't think that's exotic enough for nomination <laughs> <laughs> no i mean if we don't even have like a movie trope of like showing his bare butt in the hot you know what i mean Best death, he does not die. Best line or best freakout? Is there anything noteworthy from this movie in terms of best line of dialogue? Not from not from him. Best music, no. Best or worst Hank's love story? We finally have a glimpse of one, but it's it's like a, oh, remember what once was? The character from the movie they never made that comes back? <laughs> Can we go back to the music for a second? Because I yeah. do think this is actually, the music in this movie is actually really great. It's one of Hans Zimmer's least, like, Hans Zimmering at you scores that he's ever written. Um, there's actual subtlety to this score, which is pretty cool. Hans Zimmer this week, they, they announced, because I think Netflix wanted to create, like, a longer version of the ba-bum or ta-dum or whatever, and so they did, like, this 15 second thing that he composed um <laughs> that's so, yeah. perfect he's like i fucking kill it babums so uh i'm gonna take this and i'm gonna weave it into a masterpiece the second half of man of steel is just nothing but babums in your ear as an assault for forever but no um i do think this is one of the better soundtracks I think it's good. I, we already have like 15 things nominated. I know that we're going to need to cut this down to five. I don't know. Mike, what do you think? I, I had trouble recognizing its greatness due to the rest of the <laughs> movie's quality. You know, and I think it's if, if only the score could have saved this, that would have been a miracle. Okay. Then best non-Hanks actor, male or female, I'm going to say no. Man, never before have you have I seen like actors I want to watch in stuff I don't want to watch. Oh, just go watch any comedy. Like, find any comedy recently that's like, oh, I love this whole cast. It's like, oh, no, it's probably a bad movie. Like, there's something about, like, indie comedy actors who, like, I love them in everything they do, and then sometimes they get together and it's just like, oh, this is a nightmare. 
Oh man, I'm having like PTSD about this too, and I don't even have specific examples. There's so many. Three days in the valley, and like things to do in Denver when you're dead. Like, and there's there's tons of these like of these like noir comedies from the '90s, especially these like Tarantino sort of knockoffs that are just loaded with incredible cast and are just unwatchable dreck. So yeah, it's actually a rare situation where you have an incredible ensemble cast and it works as a good movie and you actually want to watch it like saving private ryan is maybe like one rare example of that but you know like the only ones i can think of at the top of my head are movies like shortcuts it's usually the kiss of death when you have this like enormous all-star cast unless it's sort of vignettes like um four rooms or something like that Joey, your rule of thumb is exactly right. Like, if there's a bunch of actors you want to see and they're all in a comedy, like, do not watch it. Yeah. Or, like, conversely, like, if you see somebody, like, there's there's certain actors that are, like, oh, they exclusively, like, make, like, kind of weird, unique, or, like, if they're in, I don't know, like, you see Keila Blanchard Jones show up in something, you're like, okay, this is going to be worth watching. Like, he, he might have, like, 30 seconds in the movie, but, like, he just seems to be, like, in exclusively good things. Yeah. Or then you have, like, the comedy that pulls it off, and then other comedies try to, like, repeat that formula, and it doesn't work. So, like, when, like, Love Actually is an awesome cast and is a great movie in its own way, but then they try to, like, redo that and, like, make Valentine's Day and shit like that, which is just loaded with A-list celebrities, and it's just fucking dreck, right? So... Rest in power, Gary Marshall. <laughs> Yeah, and you like you think that the um, the exception is going to change the rule, and like it, it doesn't. You, you touched a sore spot with me, Joey. It was a shorter episode anyway, so I'm glad that we uh, you know gave Mike things to edit out if he wants. So, uh, <laughs> Montez, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to plug uh, before we have you back next week for the circle? I mean, I got this website that I'm I'm pretty sure even I don't read at this point where I review books and movies and I travel a lot more than I actually post on there. But yeah, I've been kind of half-assing it. But Unicorn Musings, go check it out if you want to keep you from watching movies of this caliber or you can watch them. I don't really tell you to do anything or to not do anything. It's just a general, hey, maybe don't waste your time. And also, you've already said that you enjoyed this movie, so... I, I did. It's great background music um, and sound and whatever. It's kind of like I equate this to the TNT action movies that are usually on on a Sunday. And like, I'm just not going to change channel. There should be like a TNT action movies for like the, the channel for, for parents and grownups and stuff. Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It serves the same function, but um, it's it's Robert Langdon. Yes. I think it's just the history channel. No, <laughs> that's just like trucks and shit now. And like conspiracy theories about Hitler. You know, speaking of conspiracy theories about Hitler, John, your podcast, <laughs> Hard to Believe. <laughs> Great segue. Has been coming out every Wednesday this summer. You know, it's it's officially every other Wednesday, but you've been doubling down. Yeah. For reference, this episode comes out in about two and a half weeks. So yeah. what do you have coming up or what have you had recently released on the podcast? Well, a couple of recent ones, we did an interview with uh, S.T. Joshi, who is a great biographer of H.P. Lovecraft. We talked about the life of Lovecraft and his legacy, um, especially in relation to Lovecraft Country, which is now on HBO. There's an episode with Kevin Decker, who is the editor of all of those, the philosophy of books that you might have on your shelf, or you've probably seen a friend have, the, the philosophy of Star Wars and the philosophy of the Matrix and the philosophy of Star Trek and Breaking Bad and everything else. So that episode is available and some fun stuff coming down the pipeline soon. I don't know when and if we'll be reverting to every other week, <laughs> but for now we're keeping the once a week timeline while life allows. Cool. Well, very, very cool. Now, Mike, next week, big week, big week. Finally, 
John gets the reprieve. He gets the uh, the farewell. That's a series wrap for John. But one more episode for Montez before she is out of this inferno. Wink, wink. Hmm. Uh, we've got The Circle, a movie that you have been looking forward to irresponsibly so. Lots of circles in this, circles of hell in this movie. I hope it's nothing like one of those next week. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to make sure to remember to talk about that next episode. It might actually be one of those, but boy. <laughs> I, you're not wrong. <laughs> all I know is I can't wait to have all of my wild theories proven right or wrong. We'll find out. I don't know, but I've got a list and my fingers crossed. Whew. But for all things... Hangs for the memories. You can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next week. John will not be here, but Montez will be here to talk about The Circle. Dave Eggers' The Circle, which, who boy. Check out all 53 episodes of this, all 45 or so of Cruise Club, all 1,700-something of the podcast network, including John's ever-growing podcast catalog of very interesting guests, very interesting topics. Love listening to his show on Wednesdays. But yeah, just go to cageclub.me slash shows, poke around, see what we got in store for you. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Nancy. That was John Brooks of Hard to Believe and Jessica Collins Montez. And we'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. Yes. Anagram.